0: Two years ago, on the 80th birthday uh, on his 80th birthday, I should say, um, renowned theologian, um, longtime theology professor John Frame, who spent really a lifetime studying the Bible in pursuit of both personal learning and also teaching the knowledge of God. he wrote the following on his 80th birthday. although I've enjoyed a fifty year career expounding reasons for faith, I've always had a deep sense of the incomprehensibility of God. No matter how clear our concepts and cogent our arguments, God is, in the end, a transcendent being, above and beyond us, one whom we cannot master either by physical strength or by mental skill. And as God, his knowledge, even of the things most familiar to us, is vastly different from our own. With creator knowledge, God knows everything. With creature knowledge, I know whatever he chooses to let me know. When I learn something new, I'm learning it from God, according to his standards. My knowledge is not identical to God's because I am not God. All of that implies that there is a deep dimension of mystery in the universe. So what lesson does Frame draw for us from this? He says again, We need to get over the idea that theology takes all the mystery out of the world. As I get older, I am less and less impressed by people, including theologians, who think they have everything figured out. So no matter how much we know, there will always be something beyond us. We cannot know God as God knows himself, nor can we know anything in creation as God knows it. We cannot even know ourselves as God knows us. Our knowledge is adequate to serve God as he intends, and our ignorance is never an excuse for disobedience, but our knowledge is never exhaustive. End quote. 80 years of life, 50 years of theology, has made him a good theologian. Because we come this morning in our third attribute of God in this series on God's characteristics to look at the infinity of God. The fact that God is infinite we are dissecting as it were the Westminster catechism question number four on God what is God God is a spirit infinite that's where we're gonna camp this morning the the idea that God is an infinite spirit what do we mean by God's infinity well simply put we can just say it this way God's infinity is his state of existence whereby he has no limitations. God's state of existence is a state of being without limit. Now, in our text this morning, in Acts 17, we don't get the word infinity. Uh, The word God's infinity, infinite, doesn't show up in Acts 17. But the concept is crystal clear. Because in Acts 17, you have two different responses to the infinity or the incomprehensibility of God. You have a pagan response in which there is all sorts of idolatry taking place in Acts 17 as Paul walks into the city and perceives all this idolatry. And then you have Paul's own comments, according to Scripture, about God's infinity. We read those in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, where again, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, only a God who is infinite can be that God. A God who's not confined to any one place. A God who's not served by anyone as though he needed anything because he lives in a state without limitations. He has no lack that he needs others to make up for in himself. So in our text this morning, we're going to see three aspects of God's infinity and different responses to it. We're going to look at the pagan response to God's infinity, represented by the Athenians here in, 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 in the city. Then we're going to see the proper response to God's infinity, namely by what Paul tells them. And then finally, we're going to find out what a personal response to God's infinity would look, look like for each one of us. So let's go, first of all, to the pagan response to God's infinity. A little background on the city of Athens might be helpful as we come up to Paul's journey here into this city The city of Athens was, as many of you know, an intellectual capital um, of not just Greece, but really the entire Greco-Roman Empire at the time. In this passage, we meet two different groups of intellectuals that Paul is interacting with. They're not named, but they're represented in the city of Athens at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, these were kind of two schools of philosophy that were mentioned, uh, that that were representative of the time. What's the difference between the two? Well, the Epicureans did not desi- deny any existence of God or gods per se, but they considered them to be remote and distant, far off from our world and from our lives. Therefore, they, they kind of saw history as being somewhat random um, and life being without meaning. After death, there, there was nothing. So as a result, the philosophy of Epicureanism counseled that people should pursue whatever brought them pleasure and fulfillment. They saw need, no need to do anything that entailed discomfort, pain, or self-denial. Now you can see where the phrase, let us eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die, comes from. It's an Epicurean statement, rooted in this idea of this is the one life we got. Let's go for all the gusto we can. You only live once. Let's do it. Well, the opposite philosophy represented in Athens at the time would have been the Stoics. And as you probably are familiar with the concept of Stoicism, you, you know what we're getting at there. It would be the complete opposite philosophy of the Epicureans. The Stoics believed in God, but they believed in God as sort of a world spirit. It was kind of a form of pantheism, where God is in everything and a part of everything that he's created. And they also believed that there was a fixed fate of everyone and everything. And so they counseled not the pursuit of pleasure, but rather the pursuit of duty and to submitting ourselves, courageously accepting and facing whatever fate happened to bring into our lives. Now, Paul's mission to Athens is instructive because it shows how he approaches both groups of people. These would have been the cultural elites of Paul's day, and they're not far removed from many of the things we hear even in our own day. Now, he comes into a place called the Areopagus, And the Areopagus was a council of the greatest philosophers in Athens. These were opinion leaders. These were think tank people. These were influence brokers. They were people who set the cultural narratives for Athens. They influenced how people thought about the world, how people thought about their lives, and how people thought about spirituality in particular. It's kind of like the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees who made up that religious body were sort of setting the religious temperature for Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Well, the unbelieving pagan world had that represented too in the forms of the Epicureans and the Stoics in the Areopagus. Now, what's different from the Sanhedrin is that these people in the Areopagus really didn't have any governing authority. They didn't have any power to shape. They just had sort of influence that they could recommend. But... They did have significant influence when it came to matters of religion and culture. And so with that background, I hope you can see sort of why Paul responds the way he does as he comes upon this city. First of all, let's look at three aspects of how the pagan world at this time was making sense of the infinity of God. The first way was through idolatry. It resulted in idolatry. Look at verse 16. Paul says, "Now." or Luke writing about Paul, says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, talking about Silas and Timothy who had just departed, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now as Paul walked around the city of Athens, he was struck by how filled the town was with the presence of idols. Now, these were physical statues representing a god or gods of some sort. And all idolatry is at its root is just promoting created things, created goals, created relationships, created pursuits, and making them absolute and ultimate in the place of God. Replacing God with them, worshiping them or in accordance with God, or worshiping God in accordance with them. And Paul walks in to this town, and he sees two things going on simultaneously. Rampant idolatry and rampant religiosity. He says in verse 22, I perceive you're very religious. In verse 17, 16, he says, I perceive that this whole town's full of idols. Now, that's interesting to put those things together, because not that long ago... The primary problem with Christianity for many was the supernaturalism of Christianity. A little more than a century ago, even 50 years ago, the big stumbling block for Christians was: you believe in supernatural things. You believe in a man who really was raised from the dead and is now living at the right hand of God, and what what is this stuff? And you believe in miracles and things like that. Well, in the naturalistic universe that many people operated in at the time, the existence of God was questioned in that framework because it that we were committed to what could be proven by science. And since that can't be proven by scientific objective measurement, therefore it doesn't exist in a naturalistic framework. However, that has completely shifted all around us, and we are much more heading quickly as a culture into the ways of ancient paganism and Rome. And so if you want to know where our culture's going and the ways in which we need to be equipped to think and talk to people who are in our culture, we need to spend a whole lot more time in the book of Acts. A whole lot more time interact, seeing how Paul interacted with an unbelieving pagan world that was filled with idolatry and filled with spirituality. Now, our culture is far from objective or scientific anymore. Just bring up the question of womanhood. We don't operate by the categories of science in answering that question. We operate by religious questions. Far from being moral relativists anymore, people thunder moral claims now about race and sex and gender and a litany of rights. Unlike the skeptics of yesteryear, we have no trouble accepting unprovenable, unprovable, unscientific ideas. The late atheist philosopher Christopher Hitchens famously said that whatever can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. I wonder what he would think about things today. One wonders how he'd respond to the increasingly mystical moralism that invades our culture now. One wonders, even if mysticism is not what most Christians expected 30 years ago, it's precisely what we should expect if human beings are at the core religious creatures, which we are. And when the true God isn't worshipped, what gets replaced is not science, but idolatry. Science is being made subservient to religious values and immaterial claims because every world views a kind of faith. And how does Paul feel about this as he walks into this city recognizing this rampant idolatry that's taking place? Well, we read in verse 16 that he's provoked. He's provoked. Some translations say greatly distressed. The phrase communicates this deep mixture of both sorrow and anger. On the one hand, he sees the idolatry and he's angry at it because he sees it as rebellion against God and he's outraged and he's indignant. And yet at another angle, from another angle, he's sorrowful because he sees the idolatry as slavery to sin. And he's moved with compassion for the people who are enslaved to such idolatry. Now, brothers and sisters, I think we have a massive lesson to learn here from this word provoked and what it, what it, how it applies to how we respond to what's happening in our culture these days. We should feel the same way as Paul felt. There should be a mixture of anger and sorrow. We will either be people characterized by force and authority in our tone or by warmth and affection in our tone, but not both if we don't embrace both of these. See, if either of these kinds of feelings are missing from our hearts and from our witness, our effectiveness will suffer greatly. Because as we see Paul, he's characterized by both. He both proclaims fearlessly and reasons sensibly with people. Notice verse 23, the second part. Paul says, who sees this altar to an unknown God, and he says at the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. He's, he's without fear. I'm going to tell you who you don't know about. I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't know that I do. And yet, he doesn't just do that. He's not a loud street preacher yelling at people, Okay. He proclaims fearlessly, but notice what he also does. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. He had conversations one-on-one with people. And this is because he both was angry, and we could say that kind of led him to proclaim, and yet he was sorrowful, and that led him to reason. Paul was characterized by both. Paul was respectful in his interactions with people whose idolatry provoked him. He is even so well read in their own literature that he can quote them. Do you notice that? He's reading their stuff. Look at verse 28 For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So I think this teaches us a massive lesson about how we are to interact and be prepared to interact with unbelievers in our culture first of all we we need to be fearless in proclaiming the gospel we don't need to back off but but that's not going to be a large part of our temptation in conservative Christianity is it maybe some of us need that some of us need a good swift kick in the backside and say will you fearlessly proclaim the gospel please and quit skirting around the issue all the time I know I need to hear that word and yet we also need another word that reminds us that we need to reason with people that we need to feel not just anger but we need to feel sorrow. And that alone will produce the kind of heart we need to interact with others. And we need to be well-read in what they're reading and how they're thinking so that we can represent them well, so that when we quote them, they say, oh yeah, he's read our stuff, he knows what we're talking about. And not, you misinterpreted me. So we should be able to tell atheist friends, listen, I admire your passion for pursuit of truth. I can see that you want to be a moral person and you want to be intellectually honest, if that is indeed the case with them. And we can tell non-religious fathers, I can see how you really care about the future of your children. That's a great thing. Or I admire the way you want your life to matter. We can talk to people who disagree with us in a way that is compassionate and genuine and also faithful and truthful. John Stott offers us a helpful pastoral word. He says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. See, it starts with seeing. That was the order, Stott says. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. So we will not be able to share the gospel effectively unless we know the false gods of the people we're trying to reach. Do we? Even when cultural conditions distress us, We ought not, we must not respond with rage. Rather, we must respond with trust in the sovereignty of God, sweet reasonableness, humble proclamation, and a cheerful readiness to embrace suffering. Our culture is discipling us in rage. You are being discipled in rage because you are living in a rage-filled moment. And you must guard your heart lest you see yourself responding more to the latest news cycle with rage than with sorrow. Or with only sorrow and never rage, or only rage and never sorrow. It must be this distress that is Christ-like. I'm reminded of what, I believe it's in Mark chapter 3, I could be wrong about the reference, but where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders again, and it says that he was angry with them, grieved at their hardness of heart. See, he had that same thing going on. He was angry but grief-stricken at the same time. He was sad but angry. See, the sadness will temper the anger, and the anger tempers the sadness, and it makes it more, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, righteous in responses. So that's the idolatry that we see. Secondly, notice the second pagan response, ignorance. Ignorance. Look at verse 17. After reasoning them with the synagogue and the marketplace... We read in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? See, they're mocking. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. When they heard Paul preaching Jesus in the resurrection, they were resounding with questions, responding with questions. Some dismissed him as just a babbler, just someone who came to talk and debate. And that's a very derogatory term. Babblers were people who rambled on about ideas they picked up from other people without really understanding them. It's literally translated seed pecker. They saw Paul as one of the little birds in the marketplace going around pecking at seeds here and there that somebody else already brought. Wasn't, wasn't impressive. They, they disregarded him as a mere collector of some sort of fragmented elements of truth, gathering a few choice words from philosophies that he picked up along the way and trying to impress people with them. They were seeing right through it. They smiled, but they dismissed him contemptuously. To those in paganism, Christianity sounded strange, and it does today. Others said that he just preached some foreign, div- foreign divinities, So, they took Paul to the Areopagus, the place of public debate, and they were desiring to understand what new teaching Paul was presenting to the people. They called what he was teaching strange. They wanted to know what Paul meant. Verse 21 summarizes the essence of their approach. They spent their time in telling and hearing new things, that was their thing. So, they're ignorant. They're hearing things, different things from different philosophers. They're trying to figure out the truth and search for the, 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 the truth there. And on the surface, it appears like they're just curious. But their curiosity was rooted in their whole approach to spirituality. They didn't believe God had spoken to them. They were interested in progress, and the latest fad, the new thing. Philosophers were always on, the look, always on the lookout for new gods and that they could add to the pantheon. And if God is infinite, and we can't figure him out, then all we have is pooling ignorance among ourselves. And we get keenly interested in other people's insights, thoughts, and experiences, and understanding. Modern people are very much in the same tradition. Today it's common to hear people say, well, I like to think of God as this way. Or everyone has to determine what God is for himself or herself. And we act like that's some sort of new, novel idea. That is pagan. It's old, thousands of years old. It is not new. It is not progress. It is regress. That's why Paul refers to this way of living as, in verse 30, a time of ignorance. It's ignorance. It's a time of ignorance. Thirdly, we've seen idolatry, ignorance. What about imagination? Look at verse 23. Paul says, the beginning, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. To the unknown God. And then we read in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, Paul mentions the altar to the unknown God, and he said that's rooted in the imagination of men. And what was this altar to an unknown God? They had all these gods. The city's full of idols. It's got all sorts of gods in it. But they had one just-in-case God. In case the real God didn't get covered in the thousands of other statues, here's one more. And when Paul refers to this unknown God altar, he sees the altar as the Athenians' acknowledgement of their limitations. This altar revealed that they were missing something in their religion. Verse 28 mentions that this altar was the product of the imagination of men. Of what value is an imaginary God? That we shape ourselves. So when we engage with others, like Paul, we should work to expose the false promises that are associated with idolatry. When we see that someone has really given themselves to an idol, we can ask them, how's that working out? Is that working? Is it working? And it may for a time. Sometimes it it works for a lifetime, depending on the God. But it does no benefit in eternity. Do the people who have the God that you're looking for appear to satisfy you? What about the idol of money and education? If we give food and education to everyone, do those things solve the ultimate problems of man, as important as those things are? What about the idol of government? Which powerful government officials in the past have brought the kingdom you're looking for? What hope do we have to give to people who've been crushed under the wheels of... of of wrongdoing and injustice, If there's no justice beyond this life. If evolution explains everything and we have no need of God, then given enough time and space, nature will naturally work itself out into higher and higher levels of complexity. Well, where did nature get that quality? And where did nature come from to begin with? Why is there something rather than nothing? If all roads lead to God, how do you know that? Don't you... Do you have the exhaustive knowledge that you claim no one else has? Because you have to have the exhaustive knowledge you claim that no one else has to make a statement like that because you know all the roads and where they go. So you see, the pagan response to God's infinity is full of idolatry and ignorance and imagination. And thankfully, we are not left to ignorance, idolatry, and imagination regarding God's infinity. For the infinite God has spoken. Look at Acts 17, verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Why did he do that? Because we have the testimony, not just of history, but of God's voice interpreting that history. His testimony in Scripture, Christianity, does not come to us by way of imagination or ignorance. It comes by way of revelation and explanation. And so Paul's response to God's infinity is totally different because it's a response rooted in the reality that God's already spoken. God has declared, this infinite God has told us who he is in a certain measure. And so now we come to the proper response to God's infinity based on the Scriptures that Paul tells us. Beginning at verse 23, we're going to see three things that we learn about God's infinity here. First of all, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. God is self-existent. He doesn't need you to build a house for him. God's the creator of the world. Before God created any life, he already possessed life in himself. All that God spoke into existence derives its existence from him. Everything he made remains dependent on him. By himself, God sustains and maintains his own existence as well as the existence of the entire universe. He is the sole self-sufficient one. He is entirely dependent upon himself for his own being. And as God, he alone sustains himself, yet nothing upholds him. There never was a time when God was not wholly who he is as God now. And there never will be a time when there, he won't be anything less than who he is as fully God now. God was never less than who he is now and he'll never be less than who he has always been. No one preceded him or produced him. He is the only necessary being in existence because he never existed. I didn't say he doesn't exist. I said he had no origin of existence. He has always existed. So he cannot not be. Does that make sense? He cannot not exist because he is self-existent. Whoever and whatever exists is dependent on God, and God alone as the one necessary preexistent being on whom we all depend. So God is not confined or limited to any one place. He's present in all places, at all times, at once. And while God is in every place, He's not confined to those places. No matter how expansive the universe may be, it does not confine God. Omnipresence does not mean that God is the totality of all that exists. God is always separate and distinct in essence from his creation, but nevertheless he is not confined or limited to any aspect of his creation. This is a glorious picture of God. The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by men. Secondly, God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Look at verses 25 and 26. Paul says, "Nor is he served, nor is this God nor is God served by human hands." As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is transcendent, that is, he's above us, greater than us, not dependent on us or the world or anything in the world. He does not need us at all. He is self-sufficient. There are no deficiencies in him, no shortfalls. He possesses no scarcity. He has no lack. His creation cannot provide him with anything as if he might find himself in need of something he has created. He lacks nothing. He possesses everything. He has no inadequacies, no incompleteness, no gaps, no voids to be filled. He needs no support system as he's not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself. He is missing no vital element or critical part of himself. He is not supplied by anyone having within himself all that he needs. And as such, he is self-content. We read in 1 Timothy 6.15, he is the blessed sovereign, the happy sovereign. Because he has no needs. No panic troubles him. No lack of happiness depresses him. No anxiety paralyzes him. But he is free from all inward frustration and rests in deep, joyful, unending peace. That is our self-sufficient God. And I want to tell you two ways that's really, really, really good news. One for right now, on the cusp of an election day. And one for the rest of our lives. Way past whatever happens on election day. This is good news for us headed into Tuesday, election day. We do have a role to play in rendering a conscientious, biblically informed vote. But no matter what happens at the polls in our state or around our nation, Psalm 2 will still be true on Wednesday. He who sits in heaven will continue to laugh. Brothers and sisters, how's your heart when it comes to all things political these days? Do you believe that what is happening in worship right now in this moment is of infinitely greater consequence than what happens in the voting booth on Tuesday what is taking place right now is of infinitely greater consequence and that's not to say that what happens is of no consequence on Tuesday it's just that this is infinitely more consequential or have we given up our christian hope and identity being pressed into the worldly mold in which we live that wants to confine our identity to the horizontal We've exchanged our eternal Christian identity for some generic U.S. part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, part affluence identity. We all have legitimate hopes for elections because they and their outcomes affect our neighbors, our families, and ourselves, and so we should care and care deeply. But no temporal party or power can deliver what Jesus alone can bring about, and deeper loyalty to any party or person other than Jesus is idolatry. And it is treason to his kingship. Let's vote. Don't trust in princes. And so Paul questions the foolishness to try to serve God as though he needed anything. He says to them Does it make sense that the God who created everything could be contained in a temple or would need you to put food out for him every day? He's not a dog. We can't domesticate God by properly performing sacrifices and religious rites so as to squeeze blessings out of Him. See, God's self-sufficiency is a great encouragement for us. As John Piper says, we do not glorify God by providing His needs, but by praying that He would provide ours. That's why it's good news that God is self-sufficient and doesn't need you. Because the fact that you belong to Him means that he wanted you, not that he needed you. If he needed you, I'm a servant and a slave. If he wants you, I'm a child. God's self-sufficiency is glorious good news for us. Piper continues, this sounds very strange. Most of us think serving God is a totally positive thing. And we should serve God, right? We're commanded. Romans 12, serve the Lord. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with gladness. But... We're not to serve him this way, as though he needed anything. See, that's the difference. They were serving God as though he needed them to serve him. That's fundamentally different than serving God by depending on him to serve you with the strength that he supplies so that you can serve him to his glory. Piper continues, We have not considered that serving God may be an insult to him. We must take special care to let him serve us as we serve him, lest we rob him of his glory. There is a way to serve God that would belittle him as needy of our service. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served. There is a certain level where Jesus does not want you to serve him. Isn't that what he says? The Son of Man came not to be served. Now, we've got to reconcile that with other parts of Scripture, right? Not take that too far, not misunderstand that. But I think Acts 17 helps us to get the understanding. We are are to serve Jesus, we are to serve the Lord, but not in a way that makes our service to him something that he needs, something that we're paying back to him, something that we're supplying some sort of lack that he has. Do you see how this can help you with confession of sin? When you blow it, you don't have to grovel before God as though he suffered greatly in your sin. He's self-sufficient. He lost nothing from you. Now, he wants restored relationship. He wants vital communion. He wants ongoing. So, yes, we confess our sins. But you confess your sins knowing that you're not going in the doghouse. He doesn't need you in the doghouse. Why would he send you to the doghouse? Get some sort of vengeance that he's lacking or some punishment that he needs? First of all, Christ has exhausted every aspect of God's justice that our sin would demand. And God doesn't have any desire or any need to get any penance from anybody. God always aims to be the servant because the giver always gets the glory. And that is where we come to our third aspect of God's infinity. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. God is self-giving. Look at verses 27 and 28. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. So even though God does not need us, He is near to us and He wants us and He's very involved with us. This is good news because God made us for fellowship with Him. God wants us to seek Him and to find Him. See, see the pagan gods in Athens at this time, they were just means to an end. They were just erecting statues and altars to try to get the gods, whoever they were, if they were even existed, out there to bless them. But you see here... They're tell, you have a God who's already coming after you. You don't need a God to manufacture or chase after. He's chasing after you. He's coming after you. In fact, He's very near to you. Even in the midst of all their idolatry and all their imagination, all their ignorance, Paul says, He's right there. He's right here. It's good news. The pagan gods were a means to an end, but the real God is the end. God does not need our obedience. He desires to have a relationship with us. And this is why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in the next verse, verse 30. The, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Why did Jesus come? Why did God send Jesus into the world? Well, it says here, because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. See, there is a God of love and a God who seeks fellowship with us, yet there is a God of justice who must punish us for trying to manipulate him and rebel against him in idolatry and ignorance. And only if we understand this does the work of Christ and the resurrection of Christ make any sense. Because the work of Christ resolves the great tension between the fact that God is a judge who must punish us and yet a gracious, loving God who wants to forgive us and restore us and have relationship with us. See, the work of Christ satisfies the justice of God with the love of God. That's the cross. God satisfying his own justice as an expression of his great love for us. And so Paul tells them straight up, listen, You have an altar to an unknown God here. I declare to you the true God. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's self-giving. He's given us his son. He's raised him from the dead. He's assigned him as judge of the universe. You need to repent. Get rid of this idolatry and follow him as the one true and living God. So that leads us thirdly and finally to the personal response. We get three responses to that message at the end of Acts 17. Paul just preached it. He preached the gospel. He explained to them what was going on in their culture in terms of paganism and idolatry and then he calls them to reminds them of who or tells them who the true, who the true god is and then he calls them to respond to Christ notice how the people responded now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked that'll happen that'll happen don't be surprised is that you this morning do you mock at this do you make light of this do you dismiss this It shows contempt for Christ when we mock. Contempt for his resurrection, contempt for his work, contempt for his life. Secondly, there's another response, verse 32, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. They had just enough, Paul's message rocked them just enough that that the foundation started to crack and they want to know more. That's a good place to be too consideration of christ being thoughtful about this you know um it pays to give a lot of thought to to christ um it pays to go deep in really knowing that he is who he says he is no christian christ certainly is not scared of your investigation of him as long as you investigate him on the terms he's given you which is not in unbelief, but in belief. Because Jesus said himself, if anyone's will is to do the will of him who sent me, he'll discover whether I say the things that are of God. See, it always comes back to the heart, right? It comes back to whether or not your will is really to do God's will. If you come to Jesus in a you-prove-it-to-me stance, you'll get nothing. If you go to Jesus and you say, I have doubts about who you say you are, but I am inclined to believe you. And I will commit myself to doing what you tell me to do. And you start to read the Gospels and you pour over Christ's words and you let Him speak to you and you speak back to Him and you start and you realize this Christ is alive. He is alive. He's not just some fictional historical figure who's laying around in a field in Galilee somewhere that's decomposed long since then in favor of some sort of false resurrection narrative. No, he's alive. So there's contempt for Christ, there's consideration of Christ, but then there's the best response of all, which is commitment to Christ. Notice verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you get all three responses to the gospel. You get contempt, you get consideration, you get commitment. It's always going to be that way. It's always going to be that way. That's everyone's personal response. So how do you personally respond to Christ this morning? There, there, are, there, are, there is no other category. It's either contempt, consideration, or commitment. And Jesus would press anyone who is stuck in consideration for too long. He would say, yes, consider the claims. He's patient with us but at the same time he says how will you go, why we go on if god is god serve him he, don't go on limping between opinions you can't serve both god and money so make a choice he would push you in that direction but he's also kind and he realizes that some of us need time to think through the implications of christ's person and work and so he is patient with us to consider, and he does not throw contempt at us when we don't respond immediately with out-and-out commitment. But nevertheless, that consideration will end in one of two places. It will end in contempt, or it will end in commitment. It doesn't stay there. It can't stay there. So for ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for those we love and care about that we see represented in the first half of this chapter hopefully we've been equipped to think through how we can engage with them, how we can engage in both proclamation and reasonable discussion and reasoning with people, how we can get to know what's behind the idolatry that's present, how we can dive into their lives and learn more of their stories and what's going on and what sort of narratives are fueling their behaviors, what sort of stories are shaping their imaginations. Because here's the truth about every one of us. We are all story-formed. We are formed by the narratives we believe, by the stories we hear, by the considerations of those stories, and and our place in those stories. And so we need to have exchanges with people so that we are able to explore that, knowing that this infinite God that we are pursuing is not far from us. He's revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us, and we're not lost in the dark of our imagination and our ignorance leading to ongoing idolatry. Praise God that the infinite God has spoken, and he has spoken to us a definitive word in the Lord Jesus Christ that tells us that there is coming a day when he will restore righteousness in the earth, and that we have this time period to proclaim the gospel fearlessly, to reason, to share, to speak, all with the hope that that same Christ will reveal himself. To our family, to our friends, and draw even more into his everlasting kingdom. Let's pray to that end and ask the Lord for that grace. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Acts and the ways in which it records for us the ongoing works of Jesus that he continued to do by the Holy Spirit in the early church as your people got saved and began to proclaim Christ to their neighbors and go into different cities and speak the gospel and suffer and plant churches and raise up leaders and send out missionary teams and see the gospel flourish in Asia Minor and all around the Mediterranean, the eastern northern Mediterranean area, such that Paul was ready even to go to Spain. Lord, thank you for the spread of the gospel and thank you that it's that it's come to us. We are the far ends of the earth. We are not anywhere near Athens. When the book of Acts says, you will will be my witnesses and you will preach to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that's not what we do. That's what's been done to us. We have been reached at the ends of the earth with the gospel. And so we thank you that we now have that privilege to carry this message on our lips and in our lives to share with others who are trapped who are enslaved, may we not respond with anger only or being easily provoked. May we res- respond with sorrow and grief and distress that friends and those we love, while yes, they are in rebellion against God, they are also enslaved to their own sin and they're trapped in ignorance apart from us being sent. How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? How will they believe unless someone preaches to them? Lord, make us faithful. Make us to have beautiful feet in our own community, in our own state, all around the world where you give us access. We want to have beautiful feet who carry the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.